This is the Evergreen Empire. Green grow the forests and fair flow the streams. The gentle deer grazes, the wild blossom gleams. From ocean wave raging to mountain serene. All nature's proclaiming our land's evergreen. Welcome to Columbia Conversations. I'm Felix Bunnell, editor of Columbia Magazine for the Washington State Historical Society. On this episode, we speak with Claire Manis-Hatler of Squim, Washington. Forty years ago, Claire was home one day when her late husband made an incredible discovery while digging on the family property with a backhoe. And he said, well, they're laying in the grass there. Take a look. And I took one look and came unglued and uh, told him, don't you, you know, dig another inch get off the back and get out of there. And I ran for the phone, and I started phoning. Claire Manis-Hatler recently donated those rare artifacts to the Washington State Historical Society. I spoke with her by phone from her home near Squim about that long-ago discovery and about what she and her family did to make the most of the experience for themselves and for the community. Claire Manis-Hatler, thanks for joining us for this episode of Columbia Conversations. What is it that you found on your farm? Well, this was back in... Uh, August of 1977, my late husband, Emmanuel Manis, we called him Manny, decided to dig a pond down and we, we live on a, a farm of 16 acres at the time. The lower pasture was uh, marsh, marshy. So he, he decided to dig a pond down there. We had a few uh, uh, cows and uh, we'd only lived here a couple of years. Well, he took his uh, backhoe down to the marsh um, and started to dig with a backhoe bucket a trench uh, around what would eventually be a pond. Um, he was digging about a few feet below, and the water table down there uh, was only a few feet below the surface. So he started digging uh, deeper, about six feet with a bucket. He went about 100 feet with his trench with the backhoe bucket, and up in the bucket, uh, with one of the bucket folds, it looked like a big log lying across the bucket, covered with mud. So he laid it aside on the bank, didn't get off the backhoe, took another shovelful, and another so supposed log came up. It had a big curve in it, and it was a little white at one end, and he said, hmm, that's not wood. And so he set it down on the ground, jumped off the back hoe, and wiped the mud off both of them and realized they were elephant tusks. Wow. And the two years he had lived here, um, mammoth tusks were, uh, it had been eroded out of the bluffs down there, the Strait of Juan de Fuga near, near Squid. Mm. And, uh, there would be pictures in the paper and so forth, and that would be the end of it. So we, when he saw them, he, he knew what they were, and he assumed they were mammoth tusks. And uh, so he climbed back up in the, in the backhoe and uh, alerted me, started whistling. I was up at the house. It was a hot August day and I, um, near supper time, so I knew he was going to be quitting pretty soon. And uh, I went down to the site where he was digging, uh, and said, you know, what do you want? You know, why can't you wait until you come up for supper? And he uh, he said, oh, he says, I found a couple of mammoth tusks. 
And I said, oh, boy, you've been in the sun too long. <laughs> I bet they're, they're cattle horns. And I started to turn around and, and leave, and he said, well, they're laying in the grass there. Take a look. And I took one look and came unglued and uh, told him, don't you, you know, dig another inch, get off the back and get out of there. And I ran for the phone, and I started phoning. <laughs> and eventually reached the archaeologists from Washington State University that were working at the Gazette site out at Nia Bay, below Nia Bay. Yeah, because this, this was 1977? This was in August of 1977. Yeah, so you couldn't go to the Internet. You couldn't probably look up in the... You probably had to look in the white pages or the yellow... How, no, did, you, how no. did you track somebody down that long ago? I'm, I'm curious. <laughs> <laughs> well, the... the, uh, uh, the I had to make quite a few phone calls, and... Uh, <laughs> I first called the science teacher in the, the local high school, our local high school, Squim High School. My uh, younger son was a, a junior there, and uh, asked her. I said, "You know, you must have come across uh, this kind of stuff." And she said, "Oh yeah." She said, uh, "I said, well, can you give me advice? We want to know more about a prehistoric elephant in our front yard." <laughs> uh, I not seen any information in the newspapers or anything else about it. Mm-hmm. It's just somebody finds a tusk or a, a tooth, and that's it. And she said, oh, great, you know, start, start making calls. <laughs> and all the, the, the best suggestion she said was keep these tusks wet. They've been, you know, because they were in a wet thing. She said, uh, put them in water or something, because when the children, you know, some over the years that she had taught science, Children had brought in pieces of tusks and so forth and bones, and they would just actually just mostly tusks. Mm. And when they dry, they just kind of fall apart. Oh, wow. So immediately we did that. In the meantime, I was calling, I called the University of Washington, and uh, it was August, and the receptionist said, well, you know, everybody's on vacation. <laughs> uh, so later, to, to, to be sorry, they said that. Um, anyway, <laughs> I, I wanted to... Uh, I had read about the the dig out at Odisette site, and uh, and I thought, oh, they're, they should know what they're doing. That's who I want to get a hold of. Well, how do you get a hold of a, uh, an archaeological site on the coast of Washington, a little town called Mia Bay? And this, and it was, what, I don't know how many miles south of Mia Bay. No phones, no, no nothing like that, no cell phones. Um, I called our library, the main library in Port Angeles, and talked to the librarian and told her, "My, you know, we found two mammoths in our front yard, and we'd like to find uh, uh, some archaeologists that would give us some more information and come and see." Well, she said, "I'll, I'll find out if there's a phone number for them because they've been there for years." And uh, in the event, and sure enough, she came back in a few minutes, and she had the phone number of a uh, uh, in Nia Bay where they were uh, that they used to treat the, the artifacts that they were removing from the Ozette site. And uh, I, fact, uh, Richard Doherty was in charge of that. In fact, he was a Washington State um, archaeological. He was the head of Washington State Archaeological Research Center at that time, and uh, and I uh, called, and uh, he wasn't there right now. He was with some, you know, at the site, 
he called back shortly after and said, oh, yes, I'm very interested, and uh, uh, I will come by in, in a day or two. He had business to do out there with some reporters, and uh, I will alert my assistant to uh, archaeologist from, from Pullman. Well, I had never heard of WSU. We only lived there two years, and my older son was ready to go to the UW in the fall. So um, I said, well, I need all the information I can get, so I'll just, we'll, we'll wait for you. In the meantime, I had called the newspaper because they had put articles and pictures of mammoth tusks and so forth that the locals had found, and nothing more was said about it. And I, I said, is it still news around here? Uh, <laughs> I, he said, yes. I, because I said, I wanted to find out more about this prehistoric elephant in our front yard. Um, so he's delighted to put the article in with a question mark under the picture of my husband with a tusk. Um, we, we would appreciate more more information about this. Well, a local uh, gal who was a student of Dr. Uh, at Pullman was in town with her family, and she called right away and came up and said, why don't you call the Washington State um, Office of Historic Preservation? Uh, Jeannie Welsh was the State Historic Preservation Officer, and she's an archaeologist. And I said, I didn't even know it existed. You know? hmm. And uh, made the call, and she was up here within hours in her camper, and uh, she immediately looked into that trench, and she could see bones sticking out of the sidewall of, of the trench she had dug. And started because it was hot and dry summer, and they were being exposed to the hot air. And she started covering with wet rags, and that's the way it started. Huh. <laughs> and the uh, doctor, Doctor um, Doherty, showed up and uh, took a look and listening to Jeannie Welsh, uh, knew immediately this was something maybe a, a full uh, skeleton of. A mammoth. Hmm. We still find it a mammoth because there's no evidence that it wasn't a mammoth. And because of other finds around here indicated these tusks that, the, that are eroding out of the bluffs on the water um, would be uh, mammoth tusks because they found teeth. The, the, the indicator, if you're just finding a few bones of these ancient elephants. So um, he signaled his. his Dr. Uh, Carl Gustafson was in Pullman. He's a zoologist and, and, and works in the Department of Archaeology and Anthropology and told him to bring a, a, a equipment to start a wet dig in our front yard. <laughs> uh, with our permission, of course, right from the beginning, we said, you stay here as long as you want, uh, but we don't feel that, that, that we own this history or prehistory, um, and we certainly would like to know more about it, and we'd like you know, you to do whatever you can. So Dr. Gustafson uh, put together the equipment, and with a um, grad student, uh, showed up within a day or two, and they started to work with water, because, like I say, it's a wet, it's a wet site. And uh, within a day or two, Dr. Gustafson 
found this broken piece of this animal's rib bone. Mm. And embedded in the rib bone was a bone point. Wow. Now, standing back and saying, how did this piece of bone become embedded in this rib bone of this this animal? Of course, at this point, it was still called the mammoth. They had it x-rayed over in Bellevue and so forth and found, yes, it penetrated the bone about three-quarters of an inch. It came to a point it was made of bone. Wow. Well, that was pretty exciting. <laughs> so it, it continued, and the next day, so, an object so just, just, but just to, I'm sorry, just to pause for a second. What that means is that some human had fashioned a spear tip out of a other bone and had hunted this animal. Right. Okay. Right. Wow, that is that's and, that's crazy. You know, living in all other natural possibilities, um, here it was sitting in wet sediments that looked like a, a, the sediments from a, that were, that was a pond thousands of years ago. Hmm. Anyway, within a day or so, uh, as they were washing down the sediments, something started to appear, and it looked like at first like it was a oyster shell. Well, after carefully <laughs> uh, washing it down and removing it, they realized it was a tooth, wow. a very worn tooth, and it was not a mammoth tooth. It was a mastodon tooth. Now, the difference in these two Ice Age elephants, they both existed at the same time. They became extinct about 10,000 years ago, but there was a big two different species. The mammoths were grass eaters, like cows. They had different they had teeth, unlike our teeth. They were made, the teeth were made up of enamel uh, pieces that ran vertically through the tooth, big tooth. They'd wear down that tooth eating, eating the grass because it came in contact with a lot of grit and gravel. they get another teeth uh, set. So a mammoth might get six or seven sets of teeth in a lifetime. Well, this mm. was not a mammoth tooth. It was a tooth very similar to our molars, a big uh, tooth uh, with the animal on the top and dentine inside and roots just like our teeth. But mastodons were brush eaters like deer and elk. Mm. So when they get a permanent baby set of teeth and a permanent set, when they were worn out, they were worn out. And this tooth was worn right down to the uh, gum line. Mm-hmm. So then the archaeologists, they don't, you know, jump down, up and down much, but they were <laughs> really excited. And they, they said, well, we'd like to talk to you. And they said, this is the first, this is a very important archaeological site, probably the most important at that particular time in the world. And we have what we have found here is the first direct evidence of man hunting mastodon on the North American continent. They had other evidence of mammoth uh, kill sites and so forth being put here, but they never had that direct the, the smoking gun type of evidence uh, about mastodon. Hmm. So this instead of coming here to remove maybe a skeleton of uh, with all the bones of a, of a mammoth or a giant elephant, um, and take it back to the university for studies. Uh, this was something different. They had to, uh, and 
and it would affect us. They said, we, number one, it's not going to be a few days or a few weeks we're here to figure this out. It will take months. It could be years. And you'll lose that portion of your property. And uh, people, and we have to contact the uh, media because this is an open science and we need the money to get grants and so forth to be able to have a, you know, have a, a field school and, and do this. And uh, so this alerts, you know, getting in the paper and so forth, they alerts the politicians and so forth. <laughs> they know about that. Mm-hmm. Anyway, um, and so with our permission, because it's ground on private property, it's up to the owner to decide whether go away, cover it up, I don't want to be bothered, or let us do what we can. We can't compensate you for the loss of your land. We can't pay you for all the, the uh, possibilities of people coming and climbing over your barbed wire fences. We're right on a, was a gravel road in the, in the community south of Scrim and easily accessible by cars and people. And he said, once it gets in the newspaper, people will come. Well, all the people that come out to the OZ site, which is where they have to hike seven miles out into the woods to the coast, through the forest, uh, will be here in droves once it gets the newspaper. So they told us all the, the bad side of it. And we said, we don't care. The most important thing is that you have found something that's unbelievable uh, to a lot of people, and we want to know more, and we want to know what you're going to do, how you do it, and what it means. So don't look at us as some people sitting up at the house watching you do your thing down there. We want you to teach us what you're doing, and we want to know everything that you you know about uh, mastodons and uh, prehistoric man and so forth. And uh, they were delighted. They're teachers. That's what they do. Um, and we said, no, do what you have to do. And Dr. Uh, Brody suggested that um, they that what we should do to protect our property and so we wouldn't be liable if somebody got tangled up in the barbed wire or so in the site. So he suggested uh, that they have a long driveway down to the, the street. The site itself is closer to the, the roadway. And uh, they said, just put a gate up at the end of your driveway, put a sign out there saying, you, you know, you, the way to control it, just like the, the state parks and the national parks do, you have control. So on the sign, say, when you're, you, you, you should let people in because it's, like I say, it's a, an important site. And uh, so let people in at a certain hour. Uh, when we're here digging, which will be probably in the summer times for the field school, um, say open 10 to 2 or something like that, and charge a dollar or two. This will turn around all the loopy-loos who really aren't interested in, <laughs> in archaeology. And this way, you can uh, protect yourself with liability insurance so that you won't lose your house or anything else. So, we um, said, so, okay, okay. So Manny got to work that fall after they left. They left a, a, two uh, students there to do uh, some small archaeology until it got too cold in the wintertime. But in the meantime, it wasn't 
put the gate up right away, and it was closed until further notice type of thing. <laughs> and uh, uh, Manny uh, turned our barn into a theater. He put, put closed the front, put doors in and in out, built benches, built a big screen, and then put together a slide presentation using the slide, using photos that we had taken and, and Dr. Gustafson and Gordy had taken mm. to show mm. just just what's found there. What? How did it? How did it happen? Did, did Manny? Uh, did Manny have any kind he, of a background in in show business or in putting on shows or lectures or what was his background? He was a machinist. <laughs> so where did he? Where did that come from? That 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 vision to turn the barn into a theater and put on a slideshow. We both agreed. We didn't want people to come up here, just look in the, the, the site and know nothing about it. Huh. We wanted to educate people to just, as we were being educated, That's what cool. did they do first? Uh, they put grids over the site. They measure exactly. They photograph everything they change, and this is the way they, they uh, it's a wet site. They use water to excavate with. Hmm. Uh, all, these, all these things we didn't know, and we wanted if we were, anybody came up there, we wanted to know what they were going to see when we took them down to the site. That's cool. So they came up into that barn first, showed the slides with a voiceover, and then he made a, a, a tape along with it with the slide. <laughs> exactly what happened. This is the way we found it. This is what what the archaeologists are doing now. How you begin and so forth. It was about ten minutes presentation. Mm. It's still it's shown down in our local history museum in Squim. So when we opened it, uh, the site, oh, and he made uh, move fences back so the cows were away from the site and away from an area that uh, that uh, area for the people to park. And we rented porta potties and that sort of thing. So the and we had some the university gave us some cases, glue glass case display cases to put some of the bones in. The tusks were put in and. Um, I like to say a cuss tank. Actually, it was a stock tank, and they fit it in very nicely, and they, of course, in water. So they would come up in the barn and, and see the displays, and then I would show them the, um, the, the uh, slides presentation. Well, it all took about 10 or 15 minutes, and I'd answer any questions they had, and uh, then um, I would take them down to the site, and he made a path, a fence path, and, it, and he fenced around the, uh, the site itself so people wouldn't fall into the, the uh, dig. And uh, so we would go down there, and he would uh, point different things out. And whoever was working at the site, whether it was Dr. Doherty or Dr. Gustafson or one of the grad students, would uh, answer questions, and they could see, and they'd stay there as long as they wanted. Hmm. Um, yeah. We did this. From not, not, the first summer was 1978. The last summer was 1985. Hmm. So uh, every summer for, what, seven years, hmm. uh, we had over 50,000 people come through our front yard. Wow, that's crazy. And did you sell popcorn that's or good. souvenirs or anything? I made T-shirts. <laughs> <laughs> and, now, and now Juliana was she's <laughs> did, did, did you guys have a name for? Did you name your attraction something, or was it? I mean, what was it called? It's, it's, the, the official name is a Manus Mastodon site, uh, named after the, uh, the owner, Manus M A N I S. And we right. were kind of sorry that that my husband's father, who 
was born in Crete and came over as a teenager, changed his name when he came to America. His name was Manasudakis, 13 letters, and it would have looked perfect with him. Manasudakis Mastodon. Can you imagine that? (laughs) (laughs) What was your background? Did you have any sort of background that would have predicted that you guys would have put together this interpretive display and everything when when this happened? Or what kind of work did you do? Well, let me see. To begin with, I was... uh, I took engineering school, and my first job was with Carolina Power and Light Company. My husband was uh, his husband was going to school down there, and I was a substation design uh, uh, person. Okay. Draftsman, more or less, design uh, stuff for for that. And then we moved up to his hometown in Rochester, New York, and I worked for um, a company that made. Um, well, anyway, I was a tool designer. Okay. I designed tools for uh, a company that made automatic gear cutting machines. Hmm. And then we moved out to Palo Alto, California, hmm. uh, when Kodak opened a, a lab, a color lab there, and I worked work for Hiller Helicopter as a uh, oh, R&D design person okay. an engineering office, basically. All right, so you're an engineer, so you're used to putting together sort of systems or kind of designing things to to accomplish tasks, like to put like to kind of see, think things through. Okay, okay. And so, so how many years were the UW? Or excuse me, how many years were the um, Washington State University people there working on the Mastodon? Uh, eight years from '77 wow. when it was when it was discovered to 1985. Wow. Closed it up. So how old how old is that Mastodon? Do they did they ever Pinpoint it. The official date, uh, and this was uh, um, proven in 2011 by uh, an archaeologist down in Texas A&M. The, uh, with all the new scientific methods, the mm-hmm. DNR and so forth, um, the date comes 13,800 years ago. Wow. And the significance of that, it's, it's earlier than the, the Clovis so-called Clovis people. Mm-hmm. Um, the Clovis, uh, the earliest date they have is, I think, uh, 13,300 years. Or Anyway, and so it's, it's in contention. The, the people who believe that Clovis, the Clovis points were the oldest and the people using them, uh, uh, you know, really question this. So the, the fact now that these artifacts that Dr. Dustin uh, put together for the past 30 years that now belong to the, the State Museum um, will be available for research as soon as we get there. Yeah. What, what, what's exciting to me is to think that, you know, you're, you have your house there and you're outside Squim, and then just outside the window, you know, at some point in the past, 13,800 <laughs> years ago, somebody was, you know, chasing a mastodon or somebody was out there just trying to, you know, come up with food to feed themselves or feed their family or whatever, 13,800 oh. years ago. That's just, that's mind-blowing to me. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it is to me. And that's, <laughs> um, the, the, uh, Dr. Gus is always, you know, saying, like, who are these people? And he, he figured they were, you know, hunters and gatherers or at least hunters and maybe a, a family, uh, say 24, 26 people, Followed the big game animals, and apparently they were. It was right after the last ice age, 
These bones are found right on the glacial till, which is the material that was left behind as the ice retreated. Wow. So the ice here is three to 4,000 feet thick about, um, from about 16 to 20,000 years ago. So by about this time, it had retreated and, then, uh, and left behind this glacial till. Um, this area has always been dry. It's not a, we don't get a lot of precipitation. So there was not, uh, when this animal died, uh, there were no forests around here at that time. It was just, um, uh, you know, they found seeds and pollen. It's like a peek into the past. It's just not about an ancient mastodon picture. Yeah. It, they found evidence of bison, and a, uh, a bison, prehistoric bison, larger than the American bison of today, hmm. uh, and uh, other little animals. I was hoping they'd find something exciting like a, uh, a saber tooth tire, but that wasn't uh, no. <laughs> was the thought that the mastodon that was hunted did it? Did the the thought that the humans actually um, butchered it, or did it get away and die on its own? Did they ever determine that? Oh yeah. By the way, the animal fell. They don't know how he died. He was wounded. He had that spear point in his leg. It didn't kill him. Okay. Not that spear point in that limbo. He was an oil fellow. He, his teeth were just about worn out. Yeah. He had a lot of arthritis and osteoporosis. And I really shouldn't say this. And no, wait, are, you, are you talking about the mastodon or are you talking about your husband now? Ha ha, just right. kidding. He was going to die like the rest of it. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, he, he, if he was sick or if he was wounded, he came down to this pond and uh, like six, six animals too. And he either fell and died or he was finished off. But the bones of his left side were laying on the bottom, you know, on the bottom surface on the glacial till in pretty good shape, except where the tobacco went through some of them. Mm. And uh, and they had forgiven Manny for that. But yeah. uh, the other bones were missing, the, the bones from his right side. If the animal became, uh, those bones should have fallen right on top of the left side. And then they, as they excavated away from that trench, they started finding butchered pieces of bones. Not all the bones, but many pieces of, of butchered bones and uh, uh, other evidence that, yes, indeed, he was butchered. Wow. Um, That's... They, they figured out that they had removed the tusks from the head and, and uh, turned the head, oh, removed the head, and then broke, broke into the head probably to get the brain. Wow. So, uh, yes, and the brain in the case. Did, did they find any other um, tools or other evidence uh, that the humans left behind? That they found uh, a few clay stones. The stone in this area, especially when, before anybody did any trading, is really lousy. It's a poor basalt, and mm. it makes a, a poor tool. Um, so they used bone. The bone was actually stronger oh. than the, the local stone. And they found a, a couple of pieces of Mastodon bone from a, probably a previous kill, DNA proves it wasn't from the same animal, and it's, you know flaked and shown like a scraper it could scrape the, the flesh off it, hmm. and so a couple of uh, bone uh, instruments. Um, yeah, the and all of these little artifacts are now in the museum in, in, in Tacoma now, and and. Ooh, and that, that, 
Dr. Gustafson went through this for 30 years. All the material that he removed from the site that looked uh, like they were uh, butchered or so forth. So all this evidence will be, be available now. I haven't seen it. We, we've had the, the boxes full of all his material. He died two years ago, so mm. I've had it right here until I could uh, put it in a safe place in the state wow. museum. Um, that it, is great. Uh, it, it will tell the tale and... Uh, yeah, that's so, it's it's so generous of you. Number one, I mean, it's just it's such a great and it's almost happenstance that your husband found the mastodon in the first place, and that you guys were both so receptive to the idea of using this to educate yourselves and then sharing that with the people who came. And then I just love the idea of you guys building your own interpretive center in the barn. There's <laughs> something about that that that's just that's like quintessentially something about that that's sort of American to me, which I love. It's just that sense of like. Here it is. Here's this great opportunity to kind of put on a show, but also edify people at the same time. And then now for these artifacts to come to the museum is just really cool. That's really generous of you guys. And I love, I love the big picture thinking you guys seem to have always had. That's awesome. Well, you know, it, it was a gift, a wonderful gift, a gift to the world. Yeah. And if we could, you know, uh, make people understand how important uh, the past is, especially... Uh, and we're always thinking today and tomorrow, and uh, so so little about the past. Um, yeah, it was a wonderful opportunity to educate people. We felt like we were teachers. In fact, Manny did teach uh, uh, when we lived in California. He taught uh, machine tool technology, so he was basically a teacher, and always teaching our our, our sons what to do. And yes, it. Uh, how, how, it was a great opportunity. <laughs> how did your How did your sons feel about the whole thing, having people coming to the house and the the barn with the slideshow and everything? Oh, well, they were, you know, in the beginning they were delighted. Uh, my one son was up in Alaska fishing, um, and then when he came back, he was uh, really excited. Uh, my other son, uh, like I say, he's ready to go to school over at the University of Washington, <laughs> and he uh, uh, he was. Entering the school of geology, so it was like having a field oh, school in the trio. Wow. Um, but uh, yeah, they were as excited as we were, and uh, it's interested. Uh, yeah. I mean, in I think you know people probably find things in their yards every day, but it sounds like you guys probably uh, hit the jackpot. Now, did you ever get a chance to build a pond someplace else on the property? Oh yes, we 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 had sixteen acres, <clears throat> and uh, so to the west. Uh, Manny dug another pond, and uh, there were two eight-acre parcels, and the western parcel was a pond we sold to buy a sailboat in 1989. <laughs> and uh, but, uh, when he had that one, when he dug that, he was very careful to go through all the sediments and found nothing. <laughs> I and bet. They, you know, they had taken uh, uh, samples of the, the core samples all over our property to, to make sure what that there wasn't any other thing. But yeah. directly around that pond, they found another evidence of another mastodon, uh, actually three or four, wow. uh, just small evidence of a tooth, a broken tooth or uh, the, a few other bones, and probably at a uh, either earlier, uh, a little later date than that. You know, wow. What should I say, earlier date? Well, that's amazing. Claire Manis Hadler, thanks for joining us on Columbia Conversations, and thanks for your generous donation to the museum so those uh, those wonderful artifacts can be 
shared with researchers and museum visitors and everything. And just what a cool story. I really, I'm really glad that it was your family that found that mastodon and uh, that you shared it with everybody. It's just, it's wonderful. It is everybody. Yep. Thank you so much. Thank you to Claire Manis-Hatler for speaking with me for this episode of Columbia Conversations from the Washington State Historical Society. Photos of the Mastodon artifacts are featured in the summer 2019 edition of Columbia Magazine. For more information about Columbia Magazine, or to subscribe, please visit WashingtonHistory.org. I'm Felix Bunnell. <laughs>